You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 54 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 13th of December, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me right now is Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. It's just me and Harry. It is. It is just myself and Rue. Um, this is a, uh, a rather impromptu episode of the podcast. We're, uh, we're throwing episodes at you as quickly as we can produce them at the moment. Right. I quite now. like how sometimes we go for three months without putting out an episode, and then sometimes we just put out three in a week. It keeps everyone on their toes. Keeps everyone on their toes, indeed. Anyway, the reason for this slightly impromptu episode is that we had uh, a feature lined up for you guys for the next show that was going to come out in uh, a couple of weeks' time. However, the unfortunate news this Sunday that the documentary filmmaker Bruce Brown passed away on Sunday has meant that we've brought the episode forwards. Um, myself and my good friend Matt Arney, who some of you listeners may know as the editor of the Surf Simply Online magazine, we had the opportunity to interview Bruce just a few weeks ago. How did the interview end up coming about? Last year, 2016, was the 50th anniversary of the original Endless Summer movie. And to celebrate that, the company that now handles all the sort of endless summer merchandise and and licensing and things like that, I guess, uh, they produced a big sort of book and memorabilia collection. It it was quite a cool thing. Um, They they reproduced a lot of the material, old ticket stubs, the, the passport pages, original photographs, letters that Bruce wrote to his parents, things like that, and reproduced them, reproduced the paper and everything from stuff they found in Bruce's loft and sort of created this like scrapbook of the making of Endless Summer. Oh, that's so cool. Which is quite cool. Anyway, they released those and I guess as as part of a little bit of a, you know, publicity drive for that uh, in the run up to Christmas, they, they reached out to us and asked if we'd be interested to interview Bruce. And initially it was just as a written interview for the magazine. And we asked them if it would be possible to interview him, you know, record the interview for the podcast it's got to be he's got to have like the most famous voice in surfing yeah i think so 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 cool to be able to capture it rather than just be writing it well so it was and and it so we, we found out about this i think three days before i was flying out from the uk to come back here all the podcast equipment was here matt was down in cornwall um, which for, for those listeners that don't know the uk was was quite a few hours drive uh, away from where i was I had to go to my sister's house, borrow some of her recording equipment that she uses for the BBC. That's when it's good having another podcaster in the family. Indeed. Drive all the way down to Matt's. We got to his office, which is, and I don't think Matt will mind me saying this, industrial, to say the least. (laughs) Oh no, you don't want an echoey room for podcasting. Very echoey. So we ended up making like a kid's den underneath one of his, one of the tables in his (laughs) office. Plugging like cushions all around it to try and de- deaden the sound. We spoke to Bruce and it was, I mean, it was just fantastic. You know, for myself and Matt and I, I guess you as well, you know, Endless Summer 2 came out right when we were at that, that like easily influenced age. And it, yeah, you know, really motivated me to, to go travel. It was what, you know, watching Endless Summer 2 is what made me so excited to come to Costa Rica the first time I came here. Yeah, I think Endless Summer 2 is, is what put Costa Rica on the map. I mean, you know, we spoke to Wingnut back on about a year or so ago, I think, on the show. But um, I guess any surfer over the age of 30, 
the Endless Summer Two will have will have been the most iconic surf movie for them. Well, and unless they're the previous generation, in which case it will have been the Endless Summer One. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it, the movies that he made, I mean, the, the Endless Summer One, to a lesser extent, Endless Summer Two, but Endless Summer One was so influential just because it went beyond being a surf movie that they were showing in you know school theaters and and things like that. I mean, that thing went on nationwide tours to the middle of Alabama. Yeah, it was like, it was like the, they had like a $50,000 budget for making that film and I don't think anything like that had been done before in the surf industry. I mean just just to give our listeners a, a, a sort of an outline, Bruce was born in 1937 and was one of the first ever people to be making surf movies. I think for a while there there was like him and Greg Knoll and and John Severson and a couple of other people making making movies and his first movie was Slippery When Wet that I hadn't actually seen until recently and watching it is so funny one of the one of the things that's cool is when they're actually surfing he's giving this kind of witty commentary almost as if you're sitting you know if you sit in a bar and they've got a surf movie playing behind the bar and you're watching it if you imagine you've got an incredibly knowledgeable very funny and just very slightly drunk person sitting next to you giving you a kind of monotone rambling very insightful and and pithy commentary on what you're watching on the screen and that's kind of what you're listening to and no one really does it now well but that's exactly what he used to do because the places where they would play surf movies they didn't have sound plugged in so he would narrate live and when they finally recorded the narration for it to go into proper movie theaters i mean he'd already been touring the movies for years when he sat down to record the narration, but but even the origin, even the endless summer, he toured for two years with it with it not having any narration over the top, and he was just just doing it. To oh, I didn't know that. That's so cool. So that's how he developed that style of talking was because he just kind of got used to knowing what audiences reacted to when he was doing like a live version. Yeah, and we we, we spoke to him about that a little bit in the, in the interview. So I hope you guys will find the interview as enjoyable as myself and Matt did uh, getting the opportunity to talk to Bruce. The sound quality isn't perfect. Uh, he was recording in his home. But the microphone that was recording him was placed on the desk quite near a stack of papers that he was working through. So occasionally you'll hear him shuffling through papers. Um, also in the room with Bruce was uh, another gentleman called Bruce, Bruce Chambers and Jay Fox, who are the two guys who actually put most of the work in compiling this 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 big book. So you will hear from from them at one point in the uh, in the middle of the interview when we spoke about this uh, this book because Bruce Brown handed over to them to give a bit more information about the book's production. And Kelly Bennett, who does the PR and marketing for I guess the Brown family, who was who reached out to us originally. Yeah, she said that she thinks this was the last uh, interview that he did. Yeah, that's. Um that's quite possibly the case, which I don't know makes it uh, it's it's interesting. You don't think about these things at the time. It's a slightly sobering thought to to think about that. You know, a, a man who's had such a long career that's touched the lives of so many surfers. You know, in the in the pro of pro surfers of famous people that you've heard of. You know, he's interacted with pretty much everyone that you might have seen in a surf movie at some point. And, you know, influenced so many surfers as well. I mean, I wonder how many people you see out in the lineup now that are surfing because they watched Endless Summer 2 or Endless Summer 1. Well, it's certainly been, you know, over the last couple of days, seeing all the messages and posts that surfers have been uh, been putting up about, you know, about this. And even the WSL today, the, um, you know, the Pipe Masters is, is going on as we speak. Uh, today was a lay day and the WSL broadcast... The Endless Summer. Oh, that's so cool. As part of their live stream, which I just thought was amazing. I, I, I opened the computer and they were halfway through the movie. And uh, I 
sat there for the entire rest of the film and watched it. So what you should do, listeners, after you've listened to this interview is download The Endless Summer, put it up on a big screen with a projector and sit around with some beer and some popcorn and your best surfing buds and just enjoy the dulcet tones of Bruce Brown. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, we would we would obviously like to offer up our condolences to Bruce's friends and family. And uh, we're going to put this interview out in place of any kind of traditional obituary piece um, because, yeah, they, you know, there are there guys that knew Bruce and, and his history far better than we did. And, you know, we'll, we'll let them write those pieces and, and we're going to, uh, to enjoy this, you know, which is, is Bruce just before his 80th birthday, still very full of life and humour and full of stories. So I hope that you enjoy them. Okay, so we are joined today, uh, myself and the editor of the Surf Simply magazine, Matt Arnie. We are very happy to be joined uh, today on the line. From Santa Barbara, we have uh, the surf filmmaker and legend within the surf filmmaking community, Bruce Brown. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm going to chime in here. I think I probably, Harry and I are probably both, both one and the same in that, in that we've worn out our VHS copies of, uh, of Endless Summer two certainly i grew up watching that so uh, so yeah yeah it's really exciting opportunity to uh, to be talking to you so thank you very much for uh, for taking time for us well thanks for wearing out the tape <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I guess the, the the real impetus for for this is this year is the 50th anniversary of the original endless summer being brought out and you guys have put together a a, a sort of anniversary book dvd package is that right uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it, it's a book and then a bunch of uh, stuff, <laughs> memorabilia type of stuff, you know, that uh, they found in the, up in my attic. That must have been quite some stash up there. <laughs> yeah. I used to give it all away and then somebody mentioned it was uh, valuable. that's very cool and so yourself and and your son dana you you guys have collaborated and and put this kind of collection together i mean endless summer one was you know it really did kind of define a a whole generation of of surfers and and sort of set a whole bunch of people off traveling and, and heading down to the beach but before we get into endless summer could we just you know go back a little bit how did you get into surfing because you've been on record before i think saying that your parents weren't huge fans of the beach so so how did you get involved with with the beach and the surf community um you know like probably a lot of kids in in the uh, early 50s and stuff started uh, body surfing and I, I lived my we moved down to Long Beach Naples you just swim across the bay and then you know go to the beach and body surf and then you start you know surf mat and one thing leads to another and uh, finally get a you know surfboard and and when what when abouts was that time wise um, probably the early 50s Fifty-two, three, something like that. That's a, a real, a real golden age for surfing, really. And I guess in the area that you lived and grew up surfing, um, I, I'm, I'm really curious how, from a love of surfing, I'd really love to know how you got into surf filmmaking and and uh, and the start of your journey towards endless summer one. Well, originally it was just, uh, you know, take some had a little eight millimeter camera and, and a still 
to show my mom, you know, like, hey, look at this. This is what I'm doing. And and uh, and then when I was in the service in Hawaii, I, I had a little eight, made a little eight millimeter movie over there and uh, put music to it, edited it and stuff. And then we'd show it at Bellevue Surf Shop in San Clemente and, and uh, charge a quarter or something. And that's really what got me started. Bellevue's going, hey, you know, why don't you make a regular you know, proper surf movie in 16 millimeter. And, and so he taught me into it and put up five grand. And that, that was uh, the budget for the movie and my living expenses for a year and sort of went from there. That was Slippery When Wet, 1958. 1958, Slippery When Wet. How did you then go about promoting those, those films? Because you made a, a series of films uh, through the, the end of the 50s and into the 60s, didn't you? Yeah. Well, originally we just go, you know, staple posters to the telephone poles and stuff, you know, get whatever free publicity we could get. And uh, in fact, <laughs> we made these uh, slipper and wet posters were kind of sort of a cardboard heavy stuff with an odd shape. And so we went, I think when Pasadena went up and down the street in the middle of the night and put them on the telephone poles and they sort of stuck out like ears. We come back in the morning, they're gone. So the kids would come up and take them, you know. So, so we ended up having to put posters in like windows of stores and stuff where they couldn't steal them. So, so there's a fair bit of memorabilia that was uh, that was pulled off lampposts uh, prior to prior to you saving it in your attic. Yeah, and then in the later on, uh, uh, I got this guy Paul Allen, who uh, just came to me and said, I, you know, I want to work for you. You know, I went, man, I can't afford anybody. And he goes, oh, you don't have to pay me. I'll just, you know, whatever I make you, we'll just, you know, split it or something. And I went, I couldn't lose. So he turned out to be like super valuable all the way through the end of summer and in the theatrical release of the thing. End of summer really broke the mold in, uh, in terms of surf movies and uh, spread out really from surfing and became a much more widespread movie. Um where did the original idea for End This Summer come from? How did you develop that from, from the work that you were doing previously? Well, originally we were just uh, going to uh, go to South Africa, meet up with John Whitmore, who Dick Metz had been there. And so, and he, you know, he surfed. And, and then we turned out it was $50 per ticket cheaper to go to Cape Town around the world rather than just uh, L.A., Cape Town, and return. So then we started... Uh, scouring the travel agent, figure out where we could, where all we could go, where there might be surf. And we arranged a trip, so we had these long layovers on purpose, you know, to, we'd get to some place and they go, oh, God, your next flight out's not for the day after tomorrow. we go, oh, no, <laughs> geez, can you put us up in a hotel or something then? And they go... <laughs> Uh, that didn't work. They go, not really. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how we got to spend some time in, in Senegal and Ghana and Nigeria and a lot of, you know, a lot of different places with just, a, you know, the surfer scam with a travel agent. That's amazing. And then, of course, the sort of the dream or the pipe, I guess pipe dream would be better. You know, if you travel around the world at just the right speed, you can spend the rest of your life in the middle of the summer. That's very cool. So, so it all really came from uh, from just trying to get the cheapest ticket that you could. Yeah. 
That's fantastic. And, you know, your narration style through Endless Summer and uh, on any Sunday and, and all of your films, is it, it has a very unique feel to it. You know, this very warm, uh, you know, gently comedic style. Where did that come from? Was that just you being you or was it a, a style that you were really aiming for? No, I, I didn't. You know, when I first my first film, I go, who in the hell is going to... You're going to get to narrate it because, you know, I wasn't wasn't even thinking of myself. And then suddenly it's like, well, A, I can't afford anybody. And B, well, might as well try it. So I never, you kind of, as you're editing, you're thinking of what you're going to say, you know. So it, it, it sort of comes naturally, you know, to, to uh, as part of the filmmaking process. I'm surprised that a lot of people liked it because uh, <laughs> we had some film critic with the original one said, uh, he sounds like Howdy Doody. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it was funny because my son Dana, his first movie he did, and he narrates his own also, they went, he sounds like Kermit the Frog. So, so we have Howdy Doody and Kermit the Frog in the same family. And Mike Diffender for going across this one. Choppy. Mike's been working on a new type of pullout. I'm going to demonstrate it for you. Here he calls it a reverse corkscrew type. Del Cannon runs the nose into the standing island pullout. Beautiful way to get out of a wave. Slippery when wet, Dave Wren. Ready with a combination head dip, body dip. Dick Thomas, underneath some white water, gets the nickname of Iron Legs from going to things like that. Suction cups are his secret. Seagull Dewey Weber with one of his famous flying pullouts. But for the most part, you know, people people like it. And presumably with uh, with with the original screenings, you were touring them up and down the coast. So did that give you an opportunity to refine that style and, and to adjust the script and, and until you settled on on the, the, the one that worked best? Well, we, first of all, we didn't have any script, didn't even know what a script was. And then, uh, yeah, by showing them live, you know, because I, all my movies, I, you know, had a little tape recorder with, with the music on it, and I'd sit up on the stage and narrate the thing, you know, look at the film at the screen and narrate the thing live from the stage off to the side. And uh, so doing that hundreds and hundreds of times, you kind of get a feel for you know, for it. And also, you know, you say something stupid, you remember, you know, if the audience groans, you go, well, you, you don't, you don't say that again. And then a lot of times something will come up that you, that you didn't think of and you'll, you'll, you'll say something and people will laugh and you, you remember that, you know, so it, it just kind of evolved. And, and so how long were you during the movie doing live narration before you, you recorded the narration and, and kind of set it down on film? Uh, probably a year and a half. For the endless summer, and then the the old ones for you know forever. We finally put soundtracks on some of them, so we could you know rent the movies out to schools and whatnot. But that sort of came probably in the '60s sometime. Yeah, that came further down the line. Okay, that's that's interesting. When you were planning, uh, just to go back to to when you were planning the the movie and the trip. As well as the the destinations that that you planned, and, and we've discussed just then how you uh, drew your map, really. But how did you find an audition, Mike and Robert? 
just they just happened to be available. I knew I knew both of them, and you know they'd been in my prior films, and a lot you know a lot of people at the time you go, hey, you know you want to go on a trip for three months? That you know those they went okay, yeah. <laughs> so they just you know it wasn't any big selection process. They were just available, and they were friends, and we and we went. I guess it probably wasn't a hard sell chasing waves around the world. Well. A lot of people couldn't, like, sort of take off for three months. You know, it wasn't like they were going to get paid a lot of money or anything. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the concept of Endless Summer and this idea of, of taking a... How long was the, the, the total filming schedule for that movie in the end? Uh, the trip was about three months. We, we shot off and on for two years. And the first trip we made was I made... We went to Japan with uh, Del Cannon and Peter Johnson, who was 12 years old. But as it turned out, when we were done, it didn't really fit in, you know, with the rest of the movie. So we just, we, we, we left that out. But we had the first, you know, first surf, surfing in Japan, too. I, I was going to ask about the trips and parts of the trip that didn't make the cut. I, I knew about Japan. I, am I right in thinking that you visited Kenya as well? Yeah, Kenya. And then actually, I... Part of that collection of stuff was uh, a letter to my my parents that said, we're just left Arabia, heading for Bombay, India, then on to Perth. Well, I didn't remember even being in Arabia. Jesus. I remember being in in uh, India briefly. So you really kind of trailblazed through much of the world where, where people are still making discoveries even now. <laughs> we went, yeah, and we went to Kenya and... We had some flea bag hotel we were staying in, but it was when they got their independence from uh, Great Britain, I think. And th these guys were dressed up in leopard skins, running up and down the street with spears and torches and stuff. <laughs> and so we're thinking, you know, I think we maybe should go out, not go out and join that party. They, they look kind of scary, you know. So, <laughs> so that was our, and our Kenya experience. And so when you set out, you know, was this, did you know that Endless Summer was, was going to be a, a, a bigger and, and different movie to the, the movies that you'd been making previously? Or, or did you originally just think this would be the next in the sequence of, of Bruce Brown's surfing movies? No, it, I, uh, you know, we spent two years making the thing. So, which had always, you know, done it all in a year. So the whole idea was like, well, it's going to be, you know, better than than anything I'd done so far. And maybe, you know, also be the last one I did because, you know, I was getting burned out. Burned out from doing them. And just to put it into the context, you know, you, you really created this this idea of, of going off and chasing surfing around the world. And, and I think that really, you know, moving into the 1970s, that almost became the hallmark of what surfing was about but that wasn't so much true during the mid 60s you know you, you did, did you create the the concept of endless summer with any idea that that might turn into something so culturally important to surfing as a sport or, or was it just oh this will be a fun idea yeah well from you know early on from the very beginning at least with my surfing you know we always were exploring trying to find you know a new new surfing spots, whether, you know, originally it would just be California, up and down the coast, and then, then you know, Baja, Mexico. and But that was always the uh, 
the quest, you know. So the end of summer was just a same same old thing. Bruce, following in the summer, um, you just mentioned then that that, that you uh, were feeling a little bit burnt out from the work that you'd been doing in in the surf industry. You took a sizable chunk of time out between between endless summer and endless summer two, and uh, and I'm aware that you that you explored some of your other passions, um, producing on any Sunday. What else were you doing in time between endless summer and endless summer two? Well. All the stuff that I didn't have time to do when I was, you know, busy making movies. So, you know, I started uh, sword fishing. I had swordfish boats. And uh, and then, of course, you know, riding the motorcycles and stuff. You know, after we did only a Sunday, then you're, you're busy, so you don't have time to ride the motorcycle anymore. So after that was done, then I started riding the motorcycles again and, you know, entering races and all that kind of stuff that I couldn't do when you're doing the movie. So I just, you know, always just made movies about whatever I was interested in. And so you, you mentioned that you, you got involved with swordfish fishing. And where were you based when you were doing that? Oh, to California, Dana Point. We were fishing at the Channel Islands, you know, had uh, swordfish boats, and, you know, with Mark Martinson, who's like a, you know, surfing friend of mine. And we, uh, you harp, harpoon them. It was uh, something that, that I wanted, you know, I just wanted to do and had the time to do it. What you don't understand is like with Endless Summer, I spent two years making it. Then we spent two years showing it and trying to get into theaters. And after it got in theaters, we spent two more years going around the country promoting the movie. So I was like, it was basically six years, you know, of, of nothing but, you know, concentrating on that movie. So in terms of, uh, of kind of taking a slight step back from that, from, from being so involved in Endless Summer for, for that six-year period, the, the next movie that, that you made that we mentioned was on Any Sunday, which was similar in style. It, it was a motorcycle movie that, that covered an awful lot of ground around, around that culture. There's something about going riding with your friends, a feeling of freedom, a feeling of joy that really can't be put into words can only be fully shared by someone who's done it. film was Oscar nominated and you worked with Steve McQueen producing that probably at the kind of the peak of his uh, of his fame so I was going to ask how you got involved with with working with Steve and and really what it was like um having him on board on on that project oh uh, well you know I didn't even know the guy <laughs> I just uh, you know I was a, a fan like everybody else of his movies and I, I just went up to his office in LA and solar for when he had solar productions and told him what I wanted to do and he goes Oh, cool. You know, what do you want me to do? And I went, well, pay for it. He just, he went, hey, man, you know, I make movies. I don't finance them. I go, well, if you don't finance it, you can't be in my movie then. And he laughed again and said, I'll call you tomorrow. He called it up and said, let's go for it. So, you know, we gave him a budget and, and he put the money up and, uh, you know, appeared in the thing. And we became like really good friends for, you know, for years afterwards. 
And he was, you know, great to work. He never, you know, never complained. Uh, just, you know, we'd go, hey, Steve, we got, there's a race coming up for Elsinore. You want to enter the thing? And he'd go, well, don't tell anybody, you know, but sure, that'd be cool. <laughs> you know, he was great, you know. So having him turn up to race incognito. Yeah, I've read, read a, you know, a bunch of books where he supposedly had a dark side and this and that. I certainly never saw that. Couldn't have been, you know, it couldn't have been more supportive. And I remember when he, you know, he used to come down to Dana Point, you know, visiting all the time. And, and uh, if I was up in L.A., I'd stay at his house. And uh, I remember he came down. We were, had a, a cut of uh, on his son. He came down with Freddie Fields, who was his agent at the time, you know. And, you know, they looked the movie and. He called up next day and said, well, what do you think? Freddie, of course, to be expected, well, maybe it should be have some more girls in it and this and that. <laughs> and, and he goes, Steve goes, what do you think about what Freddie said? I said, he's full of shit. <laughs> and they go, why would you say that? Because he wears gold shoelaces. And he goes, you can't judge anybody by their shoelaces. And I went, of course I can. <laughs> about a year or two later, I read in the paper that Freddie Fields embezzled money from Steve or something. And I, I get a call, and Steve called up and said, did you really know that from his shoelaces? <laughs> <laughs> so. I guess coming from a culture where, uh, where shoes are a rarity anyway, living on the beach. So, uh, Bruce, we, we were just going to move back a little bit to, to talk about the book, if that's okay. Um, I'm really amazed that you kept so much of, of the ephemera, I guess, that, that from the trip. Was that with a view to one day producing a book, or is that just the way you are? Do you just kind of are you fairly nostalgic about things and keep them in boxes, or? or? Well, just basically, I was too lazy to throw stuff away, you know. So, <laughs> but you know, the inspiration of the book, they're just this young fellow in Spain for part of a school project. He he did this uh, this book, and he he sent it over to Alex, who's the guy who does the licensing stuff for me. And it was amazing. It was all full of, you know, photos and stuff that he, he got all off the internet and maps and, and you know, fold out pages. And, and it was like totally blew me away going, holy mackerel. It was just like a, a school project. Anyway, so went from there. And Alex brought the guy over. And then uh, Jay and Bruce, you know, got a hold of the guy. And, you know, they co- collaborate on, on the, the book or the collection or whatever. So did Dana then have to spend an awful lot of time sorting through your lot? No, Dana, no, he just wrote wrote the copy for the thing. Right. You know, the, the guy that collected all the stuff was uh, was Alex Meckel because he he uh, he was doing licensing and stuff, and he went up in the attic one day and went, "Jesus, can you believe the stuff up there? Can I take some of that?" I go, "Sure, take it all." You know, because <laughs> he kind of categorized it and and that you know, so that it was available to put in the. I hesitate to call it a book. It's more of a collection of stuff. But, you know, Bruce went to Hong Kong, and, and as the books came off the press, they, he inspected them, make sure they were perfect, and weighed them. They had to you know, weigh within a gram to make sure there wasn't anything left out. And they can tell you more about it because they're the ones that, you know, you know, Bruce can talk about how long he's been in Hong Kong. I was there for four weeks just supervising the, um, this final assembly and binding of the entire book. And uh, it took us three and a half years in production 
plus the two years that Manuel spent to design it. So after we got going, it was a total of five years just to produce the book. Wow. And, and am I right in thinking there was then time where you had to, to ship the, the books to, to the various involved parties for, for signatures? Because it, it's every copy signed by Bruce and, and Robert and Mike. So did, did you have to then ship all of the books around or get them to come to you? How did that process happen? The way we did that was we printed the signature page. We printed that first. And then we sent those sheets around. There was 2,000 of those sheets, several cartons, maybe seven cartons. And we shipped those all around the country, all over the world, wherever they're at. And Robert August was in uh, Costa Rica, as you know. Mike Kenson was in San Diego. Bruce is up here in Santa Barbara. And John Van Hammersville is in Palos Verdes, California. Uh, so we actually printed that two years before the book was printed. And it took about seven, eight months to get all those sheets shipped around and signed. Uh, then once they came back to our studio, uh, then we shipped all the all of that uh, stuff and some other things that are in the book to the printer in uh, China. And uh, so that's how we did that. And then at that point, we numbered them. They were hand collated and inserted in the book. So that's how you do it. It'd be too costly to ship the book just with all the freight, you know. Let me tell you, sign all those things with a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they come in with, it's like cartons, giant cartons of, you know, and you're sitting there signing for an hour and you look at the thing, you haven't made a dent in it. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, Matt and Harry, I think there were seven cartons. So it really was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. So, and you've you've made a total of of one thousand nine hundred and sixty six copies. Yes, that that's right? because that's the you know the film first came out nineteen sixty four, and then in nineteen sixty six is when Bruce went across the country with it, he made his big stardom in Kansas and places like that and stuff. So, <clears throat> what happened? Because it took so long to get this book done, we changed the quantity from nineteen sixty four to nineteen sixty six. This was really a massive undertaking. There's over we actually had to produce 2,000 of these books. And then all the pieces that are in, it's over a million pieces that went into this thing. And it's all hand assembled. And that assembly alone took about three months. And I was just there for the last four weeks to check on everything. So it was really quite an undertaking. Because you, you have a whole bunch of, of replicas of, of letters and you've, you've reproduced the, the stamps and the, the postal markings and all sorts of things like that. I mean, where did the idea to, to go into that level of detail come from? Uh, that, that came from our studio and Manuel, the graphic designer, and along with Alex Meckel, they had selected all the different items that were going to go into this thing. And then we like to set ourselves apart and we try to replicate everything in great detail you can see coffee stains and water stains because Bruce Brown was, uh, was always spilling things, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at a, a letter from Hugh Hefner, you know, Playboy magazine, on the Playboy magazine letterhead about inviting me to a special showing of The Endless Summer at the Playboy Theater on Saturday, June 3rd. In the mansion. At the mansion, yeah. <laughs> I didn't go. My, my wife wouldn't let me go. <laughs> You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. This is, it is a book and collection unlike any book and collection made, specifically in the world of surfing, that is for sure. And as it pertains to 
Bruce Brown and the brand of Endless Summer. We included everything and all that we felt kind of helped tell the story and kind of relive the journey. And, you know, we, when we showed it here with Bruce, the first time he looked at it, he was, uh, it was a little chilling. It was amazing for him to kind of open up and review what it was like and to kind of re-see and re, re, you know, re-engage some of the pieces of the history of the moment and then redone in a collection pulled together 50 years later at, you know, still the most iconic surf film made and it holds true today. So this collection is, you know, kind of a generational thing. And, uh, you know, whether there's maps and flip books and tickets from old screenings of the film and photos and letters, it kind of tells the story. And uh, we were proud to partner with Bruce and Alex at Bruce Brown Films and, uh, you know, kind of capture the essence of it. And so is there uh, is there a whole bunch more uh, stuff and memorabilia from from your uh, travels on Endless Summer 2 that we can look forward to one day? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> and that, I'd have to go up and another box that hasn't been explored yet. I have to go up and look, but it's too hot up there to look, so to wait for the winter time. Bruce, you uh, you touched earlier on a letter that you wrote home to your parents. Am I right in thinking um, from from just having read a bit about the book that that was shortly after your session at, um, at, at Cape St. Francis? The waves looked like they'd been made by some kind of a machine. The rides were so long I couldn't get most of them on one piece of film. Here's Mike, further along, still riding the same wave at Cape St. Francis. On some of the rides, I timed them in the curl for 45 seconds. Uh, yeah, when was it? Here's a December 9th, 1963. Yeah, it'd be after Cape St. Francis. Pretty much bang in the middle of, uh, of the South African summer there. Did you have any idea, um, obviously, when you were touring that part of South Africa, quite what you might find from having looked at a map? Did you have any idea when you saw those waves reeling down the point that you'd, that you'd struck gold? Or did you just think that was, that was run of the mill for that part of the world? The Cape St. Francis surf, I mean, it only lasted for a couple of hours. And then we stayed over and the next day it was blown out and no good. So... You know, I realized it was really special because, you know, been most of my life looking around for surf and you rarely find anything that's as, you know, as good as Malibu or places that already existed. So, you know, at the time, finding a new wave was like a big deal. And so I, I knew, you know, that it was something really special. In fact, that's why we did the sand dune thing, you know, after got the surf. You know, we went and did walked across the dunes afterwards. You know, I knew I had to have something to lead up to it, you know, to, to show how special it was to, to find a place like that. And uh, and what was it like going back uh, to, to that locality when you were filming Endless Summer 2 when you visited Jeffrey's Bay? <laughs> well, it changed, you know. At the, at the time, the first time, there was nothing there. There was like a little uh, camp with rondavels that, where it cost uh, four bucks a night and came with a horse. And there was like, you know, six or eight of these little huts. And when we went back in the 90s, there was like condos and fancy houses and totally, it was like a, made Newport Beach look like a slum. <laughs> it's quite an amazing development there, isn't it? Yeah, gee, you know, it's totally amazing. And then of course they planted the sand dunes 
so the sand doesn't blow, you know, before the, the sand was just, you know, bare. So the sand would blow out, you know, cover up the, the cobble rocks. So it made sort of a smooth bottom. But now the sand doesn't blow out there because it's planted. So the, you know, it doesn't fill in the cobble. So the wave now is, is not as perfect as it was. It's kind of, you know, lumpy, bumpy, but it still gets good from time to time. But now that, you know, Jay Bay was discovered, people don't go there that much. And when you, when you traveled around, you know, you went to quite a few well-known places, but to a few really kind of weird and wonderful places back, back then. Are you surprised at some of the ones that have really taken off and become you know, real destinations for the surf world. And, and there's a whole bunch of others that just really haven't taken off in any way, shape or form, like, like Ghana. D- do any of those particularly surprise you? Yeah, well, I, you know, I hadn't kept up with it, but apparently, you know, like Senegal's got all kinds of good surf and, and uh, a lot of those West African places now, you know, there's known surf spots and whatnot. I mean, it's amazing now the number of places that people have discovered where there's waves. And uh, it always pisses me off because every time I found a wave was always a right, and I'm a goofy footer. So now, <laughs> all these damn great waves they find in Indonesia and stuff, they're all lefts. I'm thinking, crap, how come that didn't happen when I was around? So, But, you know, we used to, to uh, made a lot of, you know, trips to Mexico, and we, you know, we'd find a place and the, Surf would be like a half inch, and you're thinking this could, this could probably be a good surf spot, but you know there's no swell or whatever. So many of those places we went to, it turned out they're they're, uh, you know, class world class surf spots now with with hotels built there and stuff. When we were there, it was just a, you know like a, a fish camp, nothing there, and and no surf. But you could tell it probably would be surf if you got there on the right day. But uh, we never got there on the right day. I mean, we, you know, for every surf spot we found, we, we missed out on about a, a thousand of them, you know, so. You, you, you just should have been there yesterday, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the classic was, I had this uh, commercial fishing boat. We used to fish, uh, it was a gill netter, and fish, uh, we had a permit to fish in Baja. So we'd go down fishing white sea bass, and... Uh, We'd anchor at Abriojos, and we always had, you know, take surfboards with us, and we'd go down the coast about 40, 50 miles to a, a reef they called the Hump, and then we'd set the nets there in the morning and then pound back up sea, you know, against the wind back to the anchorage of Abriojos. And there was like a, an anchorage called San Juanico, which was down below, and... Uh, but the guy we bought the boat from, Homer Moore, he wrote, he wrote, you know, had a, a Baja chart. He wrote, you know, the spots we could go to, and with a big arrow, don't go in here because they'll steal your nets and do this and do that. So we never went in there, and I finally I sold the boat to Hank Boyd, and they they went into San Juanico, and he 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 comes up and he goes, God. It's a great place. There's surf and everything. You know what? Turns out it's Scorpion Bay. Oh. So, <laughs> so, so we could have gone up sea in the morning from Scorpion Bay to set the nets, and then downwind in the afternoon back to the bay, gone surfing, and 
God, I mean, it's like unbelievable. <laughs> so that's my, my, my surf exploration history. Well, I wouldn't say that. It sounds as though you've explored Baja any any which way, really, by uh, by motorbike. And, and am I right in thinking you did a trip in an amphibious, in an ex-army amphibious truck at one point? Yeah, with, with uh, Barney Wilkes, who was a dentist in San Clemente. That was in the 50s. And it was, it was an army duck, and he, he welded a, a bus body on the thing and took all his drinking buddies from Laguna down to Baja. And I mean, they, they stopped in Tijuana and got all this, uh, you know, the straight grain alcohol. And he had a, a propane refrigerator in, in, this, in the bus. And we're going across Laguna Salada, dry lake, you know, at maximum speed was probably like 15 miles an hour in that bus and hit a bump and the door of the refrigerator popped open and all the grain alcohol hit the floor and caught on fire <laughs> and it's like a shore break of shore break of flaming alcohol going to the front of the bus where there was five gallon gas cans and then barney wilkes the, the you know guy that owned it he he had a little sleep mask, so he's sleeping in the back bunk when the thing caught on fire, and he's running around, running and stuff. And we, you know, we just all hopped out and turned out okay. But it was a, you know, a little adventure. You survived. Did any? Did you get good waves on that trip? No. Same <laughs> deal. No, we got to. Uh, Robert Ox was with me, and uh, Paul Gabauer, another surfer. We got to uh, Turtle Bay. And the water was like 50 degrees or something. Mm. You know, we're going, what the hell's going on here? We didn't, you know, didn't realize at the time, you know, that the, the water along the west coast of Baja is actually colder than California a lot of times. So um, it's another one of my failed surf journeys. You just got to go halfway across the world to, uh, to, to have a successful one. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you can always find some surf, but... It's usually not, you know, real quality stuff. Not a, not as good as the places we already, you know, know about. So just to uh, just to, to turn the conversation back towards the, the Endless Summer, 30 years on from doing the original, you made Endless Summer 2 with Dana and, and with Wingnut and Pat O'Connell. Where did the impetus to come back after this, this long break away from making surf movies, where did the impetus to, to get back into it all come from? Well, I think it was... Uh was Dana, you know, he was interested in doing it. And these people have been bugging me for years, you know. Oh, how about making a sequel to Endless Summer? I'm thinking, oh, man, give me a break. People would, you know, call up. Basic conversation was, we got a great idea. Can we meet and talk about it? I go, no, what do you, tell me on the phone. <laughs> uh, they finally tell me. And so I, so, so I make the movie and we split the money because it was your idea, right? Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, ah, I don't think so. Anyway, finally, these guys did. I finally just shut the conversations up. I went, put up a million bucks, we'll talk about it. And uh, so finally, somebody did. And then Dana, I probably wouldn't have done it, except he wanted to do it. And then I, Mike Hoover, who was a friend of mine, who was like, a, you know, I put him in charge of, Photography, and you know, I was supposedly going to just sit in a chair with on the beach and point, but it didn't work out that way. As we mentioned at the start of the interview, you know that that film was certainly the impetus for myself and Matt and a lot of people I know getting, you know, really getting the bug for for surf travel all over again. 
we're based most of the year we're based down in costa rica just a little bit south from tamarindo where you guys went and we we still see you know people come down there because that's where you guys went in the endless summer two shoot so you know the influence nearly 30 years on is is still there so it's it's very cool to see yeah it was uh what was neat about it is you know the, the we're recreating the you know the original journey but then with different surf legend guys you know nat young and lopez and those guys but and went more in south africa those guys were great they organized all kinds of stuff that uh you know to shoot so if there's no surf we could go do this and do that so it was amazing how good as opposed to the hollywood people are supposed to be able to do that kind of stuff how good they were at at doing it you know so it was uh, and we shot on 35 millimeter which was like a pain in the ass you know because the cameras are huge and uh, you know i'd never do that again you know can you talk us through some of the kit that you used when filming in the summer? I understand that a lot of the water housings you made yourself and, and really the point of view shots that you got shooting while surfing. Can can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, well, it was pretty simple. We had a had a wind-up Bolex that uh, in a tripod and a suitcase full of film. And then we had a 50-foot load, like a home movie camera, but 16 millimeters a little water box we built for it and then an old bell and howl with another water box that, that we use and i don't know if we even took that on the trip and am i right in thinking that uh that, that on then during end of summer one you you posted reels of film home to to be developed is that correct uh i think we sent one batch of film back and that was it the rest of it i carry with me but uh, there's photos in the book of, of you know all the old cameras and the camera housings and all that stuff and with the uh, with with the schedule, you know, you said endless, the original endless summer. You know, the schedule was almost largely born of uh, of trying to get the cheapest round the world ticket you could. Where did the scheduling for endless summer two? Where did your your destinations come from for that trip? Uh, we just figured out where we wanted to go, you know, to begin with, and then uh, we actually go and shoot and then come back. So it wasn't a continuous thing. So you know, because with that kind of equipment and stuff it would have been almost impossible so we you know we go to france and come back and go to you know the next place and come back edit see what we got and uh then you know head out again so bruce ruin asher from the podcast spoke with robert wingnut weaver earlier this year um and, and in part of their conversation they discussed his reaction to to the seaplane crash in costa rica so i thought it would be really nice to get your take on on that part of endless summer too it's such a famous scene and i i was just wondering what went through your head when you watched that happen were you watching it and thinking oh, i couldn't have scripted that if i tried that's amazing or did you think bang there goes my budget my movie and my insurance premium <laughs> no, 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 I just, you know, the guy was showing off because we we're actually going to go shoot it the next day. And because, you know, the powers that be, the sort of, you know, the Hollywood contingent from New Line, the producer guy, oh, yeah, we can't do without insurance and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I go, God damn it. Anyway, so, you know, they're just messing around and the guy stuffed it. So I told Roger, who was the you know the Hollywood producer guy, I said, just go give the guy ten grand, and 
tell him sorry, you know. Otherwise, he's liable to give us a problem. Well, then it turned out the guy, months later, wants to give us a problem. I go, Roger, didn't you give him the 10 grand? He goes, oh, no, no, I didn't. Oh, nice going. (laughs) Jeez. Was it a slightly different deal the second time around working with a, with, with a Hollywood studio and, and, and with their ways of working and expectations? It was a nightmare. Absolutely. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> I mean, it was like they book, you know, they book plane flights and, they, and they go, how come we're going to Bali via New Zealand? And they go, oh, we thought you guys would like to hang out for a while. And hang out for eight hours in the airport? What the hell? You know, and I finally got my own travel agent to book tickets because we had like 10, 12 people to, you know, to book our tickets and it worked perfect. So the very next trip we make, they don't use her anymore. I go, how come we're not using my travel agent? Oh, we didn't want to overload her with uh, too much work. And I'm thinking, Jesus, overload a travel agent with 10 tickets every two months? I mean, they were going to like grease the wheels so we get to the airport, we don't have to you know, be trading T-shirts to get the excess baggage on for free, and that didn't work either. So Hoover and I are, like, still doing, bribing the baggage handlers and all that. So nothing changed other than us too stupid or stubborn to go, hey, they said they were going to take care of that, so they got to do it. Well, what do you do when they don't do it? (laughs) But anyway, we got it done. Well, Bruce... We've taken up a lot of your time and, and really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for talking to us. Just before we go, what, what is your fondest memory? You, you know, we, we've asked you various questions about certain things, but what's your fondest memory from making Endless Summer? Um, I don't really have any specific one, you know, just I guess maybe when it was the first time I showed the movie and... Uh, Normally, you know, surf movies, when they'd be over, people would clap and cheer and stuff, you know. And so I showed The Endless Summer the first time, you know, to a paying audience. And when it's over with, they uh, there's dead silence. And I thought, oh, <laughs> crap. They hate it, all this work, and they don't even like my movie. And all of a sudden, after a few seconds, they all started clapping and cheering. And I went, whoo! Like, that was probably the happiest day of my life because I thought I'd failed, you know, up for those few seconds before they started clapping. I think that's a great one. Bruce, thank you so much for your time and, and thank you so much for your contribution to, to surf culture. It's oh, thank you. Really been great. Thank you very much, Bruce. No problem. Take Cheers. care. Goodbye. Bye-bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Thank you.